Excited about today, everybody. A little bit daunted. I'm not going to sidetrack you with comments about what a big day it is, World Cup starting. Come on, England and Wales. Uh, I want to go straight in with a punchline, if I may. It's going to appear on the screen. Submission is for everyone. Digest that a moment or two. Submission is for everyone. And you thought that Hill's message last week was a tough one to hear. Submission is for everybody. We, we call this series Ephesians for Everybody, uh, and we could summarize it for everyone. We could summarize some of the earlier chunks of the letter that we've uh, looked through, couldn't we, with a, with a little headline over each. We could say, chapter one, adoption is for everyone, growing in faith is for everyone, grace, and then power, and then peace, and then maturity, and then last week, holiness are for everyone. I wonder what the Lord's been saying to you then, if you're part of the family here, you've been around for the last few weeks. What's the Lord been saying? What's the Lord been doing? I hope that you're sharing that in our midweek groups as much as uh, here on Sundays. The combination of the Sundays and the midweeks, I think, really important. What are you noticing uh, in yourself then, uh, changing as a result of what the Lord is saying to you through his word, through this, this series? And today we get to Ephesians chapter 5. You might want to find it. Verse 21 onwards. Hooray! We get to our favorite part. It's the S word. And it's not sex. <laughs> It's submission is for everyone, or even sharper, if you like, as a command, as it, as it comes to us in chapter 5, submit to everyone out of reverence for Jesus Christ. Sometimes walking, uh, reading the Bible is a bit like walking through a desert, thirsty, and coming across an oasis, and it's lovely. Sometimes walking, uh, reading the Bible is like walking through a desert, thirsty, and getting savaged by a wild animal. And it's not quite so comfortable. But the beautiful thing is, uh, let's just acknowledge this, the Holy Spirit speaks to us through both resonance and resistance. Through the scriptures that we find comforting, which align already with our kind of values and mindsets and so on, as well as the ones that I find tough and uncomfortable and even raise my hackles a little bit. But those ones can be even more rich if we're prepared to... Deal with them and pay attention to what Ruth Haley Barton calls this. I like this. The spiritual discipline of paying attention to which scriptures you want to ignore or avoid. Have you got that spiritual discipline? I pray that we're growing that uh, as, a, as a church together. And then actually we surrender both our comfort from God's word as well as our discomfort from God's word to the Lord. Surrender both of them to the Lord if we want to hear his voice above all other voices. So as I read some verses uh, from today's portion of the Ephesian letter, and as you listen and then especially as you explore by yourself, preferably with the, the, the midweek groups that many of us are part of later in the week, under this theme of submission is for everybody, keep asking the Holy Spirit these questions. They're going to appear on the screen and I'll put them in the notes for the, for the groups. Where is there some resistance to me, if there is, to the, in this word? And why? What does it touch on in me then? What does that tell me about myself? What does it tell me about how I see God? And then perhaps crucially, let's get to, make sure we get to this. You won't get it to it today, but later through the week. What question then do I need to ask Jesus about that? You can screenshot those if you like, but they'll, they'll come around the groups. If you're not in a group, please get in a group. Okay, I'm going to ask you to stand just as we read the scriptures. You've been sat for a while anyway. It's good to honor the word of God. So if you're able to, would you want to stand? I'm just going to read some of these verses from Ephesians 5.21 onwards. I'm going to skip a few. I won't necessarily tell you the references, so follow it on the screen, but then maybe have it on your devices or Bibles because I want us to be eyes down. 
Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. And now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Let's get down to chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Verse 4, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Verse 7, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they're slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. Thank God for, you, for his word. Take, take a seat. Quite topically, as it turns out, as a, in a previous incarnation as a market researcher, some years ago in the early 90s, I found myself in a meeting in Paris. We'd done a great big survey, global survey, about the World Cup, which France had just been awarded for 1998. And they were thinking through this huge, wide-ranging global survey. And we'd done this, and I was helping to present all of these uh, results. And Michel Platini, if that name's familiar to you, famous French footballer, he was the chair of the meeting. And it turned out that we spent the entire afternoon fixated on one very small part of this big research, which was how the red, white, and blue color logo was going to appear on the actual footballs that were going to be kicked around during the 1998 World Cup. The whole afternoon was spent about him sort of fixating on this. The research had covered so much more. Perhaps more than any other passage of scripture that I can think of, I think this happens here. And I think it's almost like a demonic strategy that we would fixate on a particular little bit of it, most probably the reference to wives submitting to husbands, for example, or maybe something about slavery, and miss the wider purpose of the whole passage. And I say demonic because I actually think it is good for, for, for the enemy's strategy because what is the wider purpose of the whole passage? Drawing examples from the area of marriage and parenting and work. The whole purpose of the passage is to say something so huge, so revolutionary, that if it were seriously to take effect, would utterly transform the whole church and therefore the whole world. I don't say that lightly, but I believe it to be so. Submission is for everyone. Utterly radical kind of unimaginably transformative if it were to happen. Totally countercultural, of course, in every age and especially in our day in the West. Even the word itself, that clever Mr. Google um, I, I discovered, you can put in a word and he will draw a graph of how frequently that word has been used over the ages. Here is the graph for the word submit. It may not surprise you to see it. Thanks, Jamie, if you've got that graph. The right-hand end is the last 20 years. Interesting, huh? Thank you, Mr. Google. To contemporary ears, therefore, 
Submission can spark thoughts of abuse of power, inequality, inferiority, defeat. I seem to remember some phrase from wrestling about two falls, two submissions, and a knockout, something like that. And yet here it is, up front and central, in the Bible, as a command. So whether you are resonating already with these verses, or whether already there's a little bit of resistance as you come to this, and it may be a familiar passage to many, as your kind of instinctive reaction, let's just take a quick step back a moment. Jesus takes the scriptures very, very seriously, treats them as the very words of God given to us for our good, tells us that he is the living embodiment of these words. And that's what gives the Bible authority over us. So if I am a follower of Jesus, just to state the obvious, and the clue is always in the name, if I'm a follower of Jesus, then to follow Jesus means to treat these words also seriously. And, if I, and therefore, I'm not at liberty to chop out, am I, <laughs> as much as we might like to, or ignore bits that I'm resistant to, bits I, I don't like, I, I don't get, replace them therefore with my own superior opinion or the wise philosophy of Twitter or whatever else. If I do that, I, I read this this week, I, I thought it was a good thing to say, I'm not only making up my own version of discipleship, my own kind of spirituality from bits and pieces that I like and taking stuff from elsewhere, but actually I end up with a God of my own making. And if I end up with a God of my own making, the only thing that that God can do is comfort me. Because gods of my own making can't heal me, save me, forgive me, empower me, or change me. That's the danger when we sit loose and go, no, I don't like that bit, and it can't be right. And, and we, won't let, we won't sit under the word, we sit over it. So if Jesus says it all matters, then the good news, friends, is that this passage must be able to lead us towards a bigger, freer, better life and not towards a smaller, worse, and more restricted one. That is really, really good news. So either God got it wrong or, humbly, we might need some more help from the Holy Spirit to show us what's really going on here and to give us the power to hear the Lord and apply it to, to, to my life. So submission is for everyone. So all that said, what could it possibly mean? What could it possibly mean? Can we look at a few things it doesn't mean? I think that will be helpful. It doesn't mean this passage is clearly not a biblical justification for oppressing women. There is a fairly common reaction to the text, which says, I'm kind of on board with Jesus as perfect, but this is Paul and he's imperfect. And so he's being imperfect here. And he's being the, the patriarchal, sexist, sort of anti-women, anti-equality Paul. And we might even wince at his tone. Friends, if we were right now, this gathering wasn't here in Cheltenham, but it was in, uh, say, say, a church, an underground church, Christian church, in the Near East, the Middle Eastern nation, somewhere like Iran, which is growing like mad, probably faster than any church on the face of the planet, we would probably hear these words as very dignifying and very empowering, even socially quite progressive. Context is everything, and we all have filters. Somebody said, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. In other words, people take, as they have done down the ages, taking snippets of Ephesians 5 or 6 in isolation and making them say all kinds of bonkers things that prove, you know, X, Y, Z about Paul or about Jesus or about the Bible or about God. 
The context, briefly, let's remind ourselves, it's the family structure in Jesus' day was very, very, in Paul's day, very hierarchical. Marriage was not based at all on ideas of mutual friendship and love. It was much more to do with property rights and men producing legal heirs. Prostitution wasn't just legal, but it underpinned a whole load of the Roman economy, which makes Paul's statements here about mutual self-giving in marriage, the husband's sacrificial love for his wife, hugely and provocatively on the side of value and dignity towards women. Plenty of other verses, of course, from Paul and Jesus denouncing all forms of, of kind of legalized inequality and divorce and prostitution and promiscuity and emotional and physical abuse and so on, all of which were the norm in that era and especially, of course, favored men. Plenty of verses that advocate the precise opposite respect, mutuality, fidelity in marriage, sexual purity, and so on. So how did all, let's just get, how did all this that we're reading today land on the Ephesian ears? Revolutionary. Really revolutionary. Ancient, even uh, the ancient historians, some of them non-Christian ones, like Pliny, said he reported that Christianity in the early centuries was especially attractive to women because the church was the society within which radically women found the highest levels of dignity and empowerment of any society on the face of the earth, whether they were married or single or widowed. So whatever this passage does mean, it's not biblical justification for suppressing women, or for men suppressing women, or indeed, let's say it, for women suppressing men in any way whatsoever. Those who do that are not following Ephesians 5, they're ignoring it. Second, it's not justification for exploiting or controlling children. It should hardly need to be said. But in Paul's context, horrific as the treatment of women was, it was even worse for children. Infanticide was really, really common. Children were regarded as property, not people. So Jesus turns up and overthrows and overturns in a, in, in a way that we completely miss in our day and age. This revolutionary idea, these cultural norms, and Paul's following up here, valuing Children, welcoming children, not because of what they can do to be useful, but because of who they are as human beings, loved, equally precious, equal to anyone else in value. So the church becomes or aspires to become, again, this radically different community, offering something totally different to its culture, where no one is any less or any more important than anybody else. Third, Paul is not... Uh, here in this passage, advocating for slavery. Not going to spend long on this, but again, take the whole sweep of Scripture. The Bible is the most dignifying document in history on this. The Exodus even begins with slaves being, being liberated. It's a theme uh, throughout uh, all of its pages. And, and around this idea of the ordering of households and relationships in a totally new way. Stunning, world-changing. Paul, of course, is writing into a context... Again, just get the context, it matters, where slavery, the kind of slavery he's referring to in the Near East in those days, wasn't quite the same as the transatlantic slave trade that we are a little bit more familiar with, maybe. It was more commonly, not always, but more commonly, a contractual kind of uh, arrangement, an agreed arrangement between a bondservant and a master for, for a determined period of time. Some people estimate that even a third of the people in the whole Roman Empire were engaged in this kind of, uh, of employment, if you like. The, the New Testament world ran on contractual slavery, just like our world runs on electricity. Now, is that still problematic for us? Yes, absolutely. Don't hear me say anything other. 
But we can't conclude, as some try to, that Paul here is endorsing or, or turning a blind eye to slavery just because he's not campaigning against it. Jesus didn't campaign against it. Jesus didn't campaign against anything, really. Apart maybe from Phariseeism and uh, you know, lifeless religion. But the effect of Jesus' teaching, now echoed here by Paul, is utterly revolutionary. The effect of this teaching on mutual submission, love in relationships, that is exactly what led the Christian church uniquely to start initiating and arguing for the legal abolition of slavery, even as early as the fourth century, by the way, although, of course, it took a, a whole lot longer to come into effect. So last thing, uh, last thing that it's not. Ephesians 5 and 6 is not evidence that we know better now. Some of us might be on board with the previous reassurances. I find this quite common. Yeah, I'm on board with the, with the women thing and the, the kids thing and equality, and, and, and it's not, you know, Paul wasn't sort of advocating slavery, but, but actually... This is so out of date. Paul, he, Paul was good in his time, right? He was good in his primitive day, but we've moved on. And this still reads like Jane Austen. And we've moved beyond that now because we're, we're sort of wiser, bigger, better. Friends, can I just say, let's proceed with caution down that line of thinking, if that's you. C.S. Lewis calls it chronological snobbery. He calls it the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate of our own age and the assumption which are always dangerous, the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is, for that very reason, discredited. In simple terms, just because cultures change and the way that we communicate ideas changes does not necessarily mean that we have a better grasp on God's truth and how to live it out in the world. For example, would we want to hold up marriage and sexuality and family unity in the Western world at the moment as the model. We go, hey guys, look how well we've done. We've got it all right. Would we do that? I don't think we'd want to do that. All right. It doesn't mean those things. What does it mean? What does it mean? <laughs> what does this passage mean? Eyes down. I mean, we can't turn over every stone today. We're not going to try. Uh, but again, that's the beauty of having groups, uh, time to digest, follow up, apply. The heart of it is the opening verse, Ephesians 5, verse 21. This is it. Submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. That is it. That is the heart. That is the, the ethic. That is the, the key right there at the top. And every syllable that follows in what we've read is an exploration of that, using marriage, parenting, work as examples of Ordinary, everyday relationships where this works out. Submission is for everyone. This is the filter to, to look through at all those kinds of relationships and more. And by the way, it's not Paul's. Paul's not claiming this is original. In fact, the opposite. This is straight from Jesus. He is the source of this. Eleven times in those verses. Short passage. Eleven times we've got out of reverence for Christ or as unto the Lord, or just as Jesus would or did, 11 times. If, so, so if this was a song, as unto the Lord would be that chorus. It would be the catchy bit that keeps repeating that you can't get out of your head and you hum it. As unto the Lord, as unto the Lord, as unto the Lord. And the verses in between in the song would be the contexts in which the relationships get worked out, in which this submission idea to each other gets worked out. As unto the Lord, as unto the Lord. That's the filter. 
So if you're not married in the room, you're not a parent, you're not in employment, this passage applies to you as much as it does to anybody else. Because this is not a specific restricted list. Submission is for everyone. Whoever you are. In all your common environments. As to the Lord then means what? Means living awake to Jesus. It means living alive to Jesus. It means living attentive to who he is, attentive to the presence of the Holy Spirit in all of those arenas. And the evidence that I'm doing that, the evidence that I am attentive to Jesus and awake to him is what? Submission. That's the evidence. It looks like submission. It's such an unpopular word. Of course it is. Thankfully, though, Paul gives us much more than the word. He gives us a person. He shows us the person, the foundation on which all of this is built. And we only understand the letter. We only understand, begin to understand this letter if we, if we, if we keep coming back to the foundation that it's written on, which is Jesus, his own example and his own teaching. So Jesus, who radically redefines greatness in what he says and what he does, this call to humility and submission, which is, con- you read through, the, read through the Gospels, it's constantly confusing to those who are near him, especially the disciples, constantly confusing, even offensive, actually. They want to elevate him, he withdraws. They want to put him on a pedestal in front of a parade him in front of a big crowd, he slips away. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. He grabs a towel, gets on his knees, washes their feet. That's what greatness looks like then, he says, in the kingdom. Going lower for the sake of others. Going lower. Submission is for everyone. They want to crown him as the conquering king. He says, no, we're going to Jerusalem where I'll be crucified. So sure, he's a king. He's the king. But he's come to reign from a cross, not an earthly throne. It's all so upside down. Almost scandalously counterintuitive to their ears, even to ours. The word, by the way, the Greek word, hypotasso, hypo, under, beneath, tasso, to place, says it really. It's to place yourself underneath someone else. Not to put yourself down so much as to get underneath that other person to help to raise them up. That's submission. How beautiful is that? Putting their good even above my own. Out of love. Who's the model? Jesus. Again and again and again. Freely, willingly, over and over. He teaches humility. He acts humbly. He submits to positionally weaker parties, if you like. That's the disciples. That's you. That's me. To the point of what? Laying down his life. To that point, that's greatness in his radical redefinition. That's kingdom greatness right there. Let's not believe otherwise. And then to his followers, remember, it's clues in the name, (laughs) follow me in this. Do the same. Wash feet. Take up your cross daily. Be willing to pay the price for getting underneath people. Or on Paul's lips from that, that, that ancient hymn in Philippians 2, have the same mindset that was in Jesus. In humility, what does he say? Value others more highly than yourselves. That's submission. 
getting underneath. Submission is for everyone. So we take that into Ephesians 5 and 6. And if we don't take that, all of that, we'll miss it. That's what we take. That's how we look. That's how we see. That's how we interpret. Submissions for everyone, as unto the Lord. It was actually really shocking in that culture that he even directly addressed women, children, and slaves, by the way. Nobody else did that. The first word of all of those verses there is women, children, slaves. But what was outrageously shocking was that he called husbands and fathers and masters to submit to those considered culturally, positionally beneath them not just the other way around. Because submission's for everyone. So he goes through these couplets. Clearly, my focus today is not on the couplets particularly, because Paul's isn't either, actually. If you want the Bible's teaching on marriage and parenting and work and slavery, you'll need to do a lot more study than just turn to Ephesians 5 and 6. But just a, a few comments on each. Submission in marriage. Wives, submit to your husband. Husbands, love your wife as Jesus loved the church. So forget, no, again, remember our filter, forget notions of who's in charge, Who's the boss? Uh, that to be powerful, you've got to be the number one. This has got nothing to do with any of that. Remember, the definition of kingdom greatness is more about going lower for the sake of the other so that you encourage and help them to shine. Marriage is covenantal love, not contractual arrangement. So there's no talk here of rights. That's the path to disaster in any relationship, let alone marriage but only shared responsibilities. So in this covenant, husbands, wives are to be equally valued, equally valuable, beautifully complementary in their God-given differences, living in mutual, loving submission each to the other, with the husband having the greater responsibility of leading that partnership in a God-glorifying direction, willing to sacrifice everything, to absorb every cost, for the sake of his wife, just as Jesus loves his bride, the church, not bossing her around, but loving her into greater wholeness to the point of what? Laying down his life for her. Submission. It's for wife and husband and everyone. Family life, verse 1 to 4 of chapter 6. Children, again, equally valued, equally valuable, not more. Need to be careful of that in our age and generation, but not less. Called to honor their parents. Yes, honor their parents. Imperfect, ordinary, you know, fallen, disappointing human beings like me and Hills as parents. Honor them with obedience and respect as unto the Lord. Parents, avoid exasperating your children. That's exasperation, I think, is the byproduct of being over controlling, probably fearful, and certainly self centered. But to raise your children, what does the verse say? In the training and instruction of the Lord. So the biblical submission here of fathers and mothers to their children as unto the Lord clearly is not about giving children free rule and reign in the household, pretending somehow that healthy discipline is not loving. It's the exact opposite. To love is to provide healthy discipline. Let's state it clearly. But again, look at how, how Jesus fathered the disciples being patient and prayerful and encouraging and giving them space to fail and to grow, getting underneath them in that way, yes, in order to encourage, grow, and raise them up as he trained them in the ways of the Father. Submitting in that sense to them, raising them up in maturity, faith, Christ-likeness. Submission is for everyone, as unto the Lord. 
Slaves, masters, employees, employers, even in the context of unjust systems, corrupt practices, abuses of power, which Paul isn't addressing here, this way of seeing through the lens of Jesus, submission as unto the Lord, it makes it possible to give your heart to your work in life-giving, rewarding service for the approval of who? The ultimate owner, says the passage. The ultimate owner, the ultimate boss of, of all things. Spurgeon, the preacher, he spoke to a housemaid apparently who had recently become a Christian. He asked her, what evidence is there in your life that you've now turned to, to follow Jesus Christ? And she replied, I now sweep under the doormat. Submission to earthly bosses as evidence of submission to the ultimate king. Right there in verse 7. Verse 8, bosses. Remember, you and your workers, you've all got the same master. Any bosses in the room? Workers in the room? Sure. The master loves you all equally. The ones who are great at their jobs, the ones who aren't so good. So treat them as the master treats you. Submission. Get underneath them for their good. As unto the Lord. Wives then, summary. Husbands, kids, parents, workers, bosses. They're examples. If you're not one of those, you're still included. We're going to be left with, with questions. Uh, of course we are. We always are uh, from the passage, uh, some of which I haven't addressed and some of which the passage doesn't address. And we'll need to, of course, work, work, work at it with the Holy Spirit. I've got a final quote and a final uh, verse. Here's the quote. Richard Foster says this. I'll read it slowly. Submission, then, is the spiritual discipline. It's chiming, isn't it? Rule of life, disciplines, habits that we form or don't. Submission is that spiritual discipline that frees us from the everlasting burden of always needing to get our own way. In submission, we're learning to hold things lightly. We're also learning to diligently watch over the spirit in which we hold, relate to others. Honoring them, preferring them. I would want to add, getting underneath them. Why? Loving them. And the final verse, I don't know if you've seen it in your Bible. Our Bibles put a heading above Ephesians 5.21, as if it's a new paragraph or a new sentence. Actually, I don't know why they've done that. Verse 21 is a direct continuation in this list that Paul began in verse 18. If you've got your Bible open, flip back to 18, where he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And go on being filled. You know that verse, right? It's not just once. It's like go on being filled. Go on being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And the consequences of being filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and Andrew and Nicky are drawing to our attention to it beautifully this morning in that other verse from Ephesians 3. The consequences of being filled with the Holy Spirit of God, the effects of his presence in your life and in mine flowing in us will show up. The evidence of that will show up in these ways. That's what he's saying. Verse 19, you will encourage each other. You will be full of worship to God. Verse 19, you will be endlessly thankful, constantly thankful for all God's mercies and goodness. And number four, it's in the same list. The evidence of being filled by the Holy Spirit is you will submit to one another. You will be empowered to do that. You will find yourselves equipped and empowered to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. That's stunning. That's stunning. 
getting underneath each other, raising each other up in love as unto the Lord. Submission is for everyone and it can change the world.